for Elizabeth Escape, so I just want to say thank you for that very generous introduction. I'm just sorry my mother wasn't here to hear it. Just to be quite clear, as Elizabeth said, we've got about an hour now. There'll then be a break for about 20 minutes, and we will finish by 4.30. Elizabeth said quite enough about me, except the one thing I'd emphasize is when I went up to university, I went up to read physics, changed fairly quickly to biology, stayed on and did a PhD and postdoctoral research in evolutionary biology and population genetics, hence the beginnings, I think, of my interest in this area, and then trained to be a school teacher and taught in schools for five years before moving back into higher education. And as Elizabeth said, I've also been ordained quite a long time, almost 30, 30 years, so have, have therefore had some theological training and qualifications. Now, I thought I'd say, it's, I mean, it's great to see you here, and it's fantastic to be here. I mean, St Paul's, as we know, is, uh, I mean, Elizabeth alluded to the fact they had had a fire for 350 years, as I'm sure probably everybody here knows, uh, the original St Paul's, which I think dates from some, well, the original goes back to 674, but the Gothic Cathedral was, was burned down in, in 1666 in the Great Fire of London, and Charles Wren was appointed, as you probably know, as the King's architect, and with Hawksmoor and others, did 52 city churches and the cathedral. The cathedral was built quickly, it was built in 32 years, between starting in 1669 and its official opening, which is, for European cathedral standards, incredibly quick. And in fact, Wren lived for almost 90, so he lived over a decade after it had been opened, which, which, is, which is an extraordinary sort of thing. And it has had a long tradition, as many of you also know, for interest not so much in evolution, but in the arts. So some of you will know one of the Holman Hunts, The Light of the World, is here, there's a very good, famous Henry Moore here, Mother and Child. And I just watched about half an hour ago uh, all of one of the Bill Viola videos, Martyrs, which is one of his very good 15-second videos. And there's another one of his up here. This is also British Science Week, which I don't know if some of you know that or not, but it fits quite well. We're doing something that's to do specifically with science. Now, I'm going to carry on sort of lecture mode for a bit, but as Elizabeth indicated there are some handouts, some of them are purely information, I'll talk you through them, but some are where I'll ask you to think a little bit about what an image suggests to you. So as we go through the session it will get a bit more interactive, but I'll start off very conventionally in lecture mode. This is about evolution and religion, broadly speaking, so I wanted to start fairly obviously with Charles Darwin because he is, both in this country and internationally, the most important person to know something about. He was almost certainly an extremely nice person, as far as we can gather. I, I know Martin Rees very well, who is the historical world, president of the Royal Society, who always used to say that, you know, this country has produced two utterly preeminent scientists, Darwin and Newton, and you wouldn't want to meet Newton. <laughs> <laughs> so, Darwin... Born February the 12th, 1809, um, normal boyhood, except his mother died when he was eight, and it's very interesting. He couldn't remember anything about her, so it must have had quite a deep impact at, a, at an unconscious level. He must have just lost all of those memories, presumably because of the pain associated with them. But he, his, his family was well off. There were a lot of both men and women around, elder sisters. He was brought up uh, within the family. Uh, 
Unitarian, which without going to a theology lecture about it, roughly speaking, means not Trinitarian, so not the conventional Roman Catholic or Church of England or Baptist or Methodist position, but a belief in a God who, who sustains the world and, and was ultimately, is ultimately responsible for it. Shrewsbury School, as probably some of you know, went off to Edinburgh to train to be a doctor. Absolutely could not stand the first dissection to which he went, so that was the end of that career. Spent the rest of the time in Edinburgh, um, mainly walking around, learning quite a lot about natural history, which of course his father thought was a total waste of time. But actually, he was good at it. He was very good, and one of the professors there, a man called Grant, realised he was good. Interestingly also, Darwin also learnt uh, how to stuff animals, so taxidomy while he was there, and he learned from a freed black slave. The Darwin family, as you may or may not know because their Wedgwood connections perhaps, were passionately anti-slavery. And it is one of the ironies that occasionally in the 20th century Darwin has been accused of being racist. Now, of course, by the standards of today's time, you look back 100 years and practically everybody who was white was racist and everybody who was male was you know, intolerably sexist and everybody was ageist and they, they weren't good on gay and lesbian issues, etc., etc. But by the standards of the time, Darwin was a very caring man of tremendous principle um, and personal conviction. Um, so Edinburgh, great for many things, but not for becoming a doctor. Father sent him to Christ's College, Cambridge. Christ's has both Darwin and Milton as its top two um, sort of exports. And the idea was he's going to be a clergyman. One of his favourite books while he was at Cambridge was a book written by Paley, which some of you will know is the famous book which has the analogy of if you go out on a walk on a heath and you see a watch there, you do not suppose the watch has just come into existence. It has been left by somebody. There is a designer. So Paley's book was one of the rather good codifications of the argument for the existence of God through design in the natural world. And Darwin, as a well-read undergraduate, thought it was beautifully logically argued. He found it convincing and he was already getting very interested in biology. Uh, for many reasons, rather fortunately, Darwin did not go into the church and he became known while at Cambridge as the man who walked with Henslow. Henslow was a botanist. Darwin clearly as a very young man, although modest, had this ability to get on with great scientists. I mentioned Grant in Edinburgh and Henslow and the Henslow link was very important because Darwin had continued with his interests in natural history while at Cambridge. He was famous for collecting beetles. And when the person who was going to be possibly the naturalist, possibly the captain's companion, there's, a, there's an erudite academic argument about it, for a ship called the Beagle, when that person dropped out, at short notice they needed to get somebody who could be either the naturalist for the two-year voyage or possibly the ship's captain's companion because the ship needed a gentleman companion. Darwin got told about this by Henslow, wanted to do it. His father said no, which seems totally sensible of any father of a young man in his young 20s who at about you know, half an hour's notice says, Dad, I want to go around the world for two years. Can you give me the money? 
Fortunately, one of the Wedgwoods persuaded Darwin's father. Um, you know, not a bad idea. It took five years, the voyage, in the end. The communications were pretty good, letters and so on, but he was away for five years. He never left England again. Um, he'd never been abroad before. He'd be been to Wales, done a bit of geology on a, on a student trip. <laughs> um, uh, came back. He was already become quite famous as a scientist because of the scientific reports he'd written. He'd basically discovered how coral atolls came into being, which is nothing to do with biological evolution. I must have been too long in it, but he's right to this day. Nobody else had known. So the geologists were very impressed with this because it's such a beautiful argument he came up with. He was, of course, five years old when he came back, quite a famous young man. Uh, his cousin, Emma, whom he'd known for a while, and he met and started seriously to think about whether he going to get married. Uh, he, 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 throughout his life, at times, he was endearingly almost um, naive. There's this famous account, which I don't know if some of you have heard of, where he's trying to decide whether to get married or not. And most of us make these decisions for a sort of complicated mess of reasons. But Darwin tried to methodically write on one bit of the paper advantages of getting married. Uh, but I don't know if Emma ever read, because they don't sound the most romantic set of reasons. He did talk about companionship. And then the other side, <clears throat> disadvantages, which included you know, less time for work and children and all these major disadvantages for marriage. Uh, when his children did arrive, Darwin was really surprised to find how much he loved them. Uh, not just loved them as people, but how much he loved children. Uh, and as some of you will know, immediately started making very high-quality observations on them, which ended up being used in later books. On this famous voyage to the Beagle, this five-year voyage, as many of you will know, he went to many, many interesting places. He was literally on Chile when there was an earthquake. I've told you about the coral atolls. He worked out their origins. But iconically, the most famous place he went to were the Galapagos Islands off Ecuador, which most of us know from David Attenborough-like television programs on television. He did not realise at the time how important they were going to be to his thinking. So he was rather embarrassed by the fact that when he collected specimens of birds and other animals there, he did not label them depending on which island they came from. But having left the island and pondering on it, he began to realise, look, these animals, they're not the same as the animals on the mainland, but they're not that different. Surely, surely, they must have just, you know, their ancestors arrived on the islands and changed over time a bit. And when he was on the islands, there's a famous and almost certainly true account of a dinner he had with somebody, I forget, I think it was one of the generals on one of the islands, not a military general, but the sort of civic officer, who happened to mention that he could tell which island any of the giant tortoises came from because of the shape of their shells. And Darwin seemed to have a phenomenal ability to remember these isolated bits of information and then ponder them. And as he carried on the voyage of the Beagle with his relationship with poor old Fitzroy gradually going down and down and down, Fitzroy being a very 
Bible-believing Christian who became increasingly uncomfortable at Darwin's enthusiasm for maybe the Earth was very old, maybe species had changed. But as he travelled back, Darwin on the Beagle, he gradually began to put together what we know as the theory of natural selection. Okay? Now I'll explain this by handout in about five or six minutes, but just park it for a second. The theory of natural selection. This is, of all the things Darwin came up with, one of the most important concepts. <clears throat> he, uh, he knew it was important, and although he's rather a hesitant person, and we think wasn't very keen to write up his work too quickly, partly because he feared probably the reaction of Victorian society in general, and partly, possibly more importantly, because Emma had a very straightforward but deep Christian faith, and Darwin began to worry that the implications of his work for many people would cause a drift apart of science and faith. So he did other things. So some of you will know one of the most famous things he did, as one does, is he spent eight years studying barnacles. <laughs> That's all he did in his work for eight years, to the extent that when the children once visited family friends some distance away, one of the boys innocently asked his um, host's child, one of the host's children, where does your father do his barnacles? <laughs> On the assumption that's what dads do. <laughs> so he did the barnacles, he then sort of got back, gradually started writing this appallingly long tome and then in 1858, okay, so by now he's 49 years old, probably still years away from publishing his ideas about natural selection, he gets a letter. He gets a letter from somebody called Alfred Russell Wallace of a completely different social background. Darwin was always a bit worried the family was going to run out of money, in today's language, when he died, Darwin had about £15 million worth of stocks and shares and so on, so they weren't hard up. Wallace was... was it's very difficult to use today's classification of social class for, you know, 150 years ago, but it's something like lower middle class. Uh, absolutely had to work for money all his life, was a surveyor, um, but was passionate, passionate about insects. Did years of work in South America, Almost all of the specimens got lost in a shipwreck on the way home, headed off to the other side of the world, uh, towards sort of Malaysia and so on, discovered what is now called Wallace's Line, got malaria, and while he had malaria, came up with the identical theory of natural selection. So as many of you know, this is one of the real differences between the sciences and mathematics on the one hand and all other branches of knowledge on the other, you can have two people coming up with identical ideas. I remember when I was doing my PhD, which was really applied maths, and I read far too many papers, I came across this obscure Japanese journal, I couldn't read Japanese at the time, but the mathematics of one of the arguments was absolutely identical to one of the things that I'd been working on. And I can remember the temptation to just pretend I'd never seen the article, which I've never seen cited, apart from in my PhD, before or since by anybody, um, sort of thing. But there we are, poor old Darwin gets this letter. And 
in a way that, again, historians have argued, I think it was rather well handled. Wallace asked Darwin to pass on the letter to a man called Lyle, who was a famous geologist, and Lyle, I think, acted superbly. The short version is that Lyle got a joint paper by Darwin and Wallace read at the Linnaean Society within a few months. There's a very famous account at the end of the year by the president of the Linnaean Society, which I promise you goes something like this. This is not one of those years of science that will be remembered for a momentous <laughs> discovery. <laughs> which, of course, is utterly wrong, because that paper, probably along with the Watson-Crick um, paper on the structure of DNA, are the two most important papers in biology ever, probably. The other thing, of course, is that um, Darwin then thought, I'd better get a move on. And he produced an abstract of his book. Now, the abstract is what we know as the 500-page book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for existence. They went in for long titles, Victorians, published on, I think, the 24th or 25th, I can't remember, of November 1859. Sold out on the first day, 1,250 copies, which was pretty good. He was already well-known, Darwin, and, and is without a shadow of the doubt the most important biology book ever written. I'm allowed to ask, how many of you read at least some of On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection? If you want to wave a hand, do it. doesn't matter at all. Well, that's pretty good. That's at least a dozen of us. Now, I doubt, I mean, I don't know, Brief History of Time, Stephen Hawking? Try that one. How are we doing with that? Well, that's fantastic. It's actually, I went to an exact count, but that's a tie, basically. Actually, last one, I'm just thinking of this as you can tell I'd live. Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins? Well, that's extraordinary. That's a three-way tie. Now, isn't that nice? Darwin, uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, Richard Dawkins. But I, I can't think, unless anybody else can, of any book that's likely to be read by many people who are not academics in the particular field, as it were. Um, and it's still beautifully well-written and can be read to this day. Right, let me just talk you through now natural selection and compare it with the most common alternative. Now, giraffes are not the only animal that Lamarck's theory applies to, but they seem to be almost you know, iconically associated. So you've literally got to imagine this sad-looking giraffe at the top left straining to reach the trees that he can just manage to get to so it can eat. And there it says, keep stretching neck to reach leaves higher up on tree and continue stretching until neck becomes progressively longer. Okay, we might be talking only about, on average, a millimetre or two in a generation. But the other easy way of thinking it is, it's a bit like the argument that the blacksmith's son, because they were sons, they were men in those days who were blacksmiths, the blacksmith's son will have bigger muscles because his dad has big muscles. So Lamarck's view is that some of the traits, the characters, the behaviours we acquire during our lives are handed on to our offspring. Intellectually, makes complete sense. In terms of the mechanism of inheritance, one could imagine various ways 
in which gametes, the eggs and the sperm, are made, which would indeed allow this sort of transmission of traits acquired. It just so happens that in at least 99.9% .9 of cases, there are some very complicated arguments about elements of Lamarckianism. But basically, in 99% of cases, it's wrong. Nothing wrong in science with being wrong as a theory. Very useful. But it just doesn't work. There were some classic experiments where they did things like amputate the tails of a half of a load of rats in an experiment each generation. In other words, they then couldn't use their tails because they hadn't got tails. And they carry on breeding from the rats generation after generation and comparing their tail length with the tail length of rats that have had tails and have used them for no doubt the various things that rats use tails during their life. And let me ask you, after, and you remember it went for at least seven generations. After seven generations, which do you think have the longer tails? The rats that have always been able to use them or the rats that have had them amputated at birth and therefore have never used them? Well done. It's a slightly unfair question, but the answer is the same, which several of you were saying. It doesn't make a jot of difference. It doesn't help you. Rather like if you and I, well, I can't be sure of all of you, but let's say if one has spoken a particular language, English, generation after generation, it doesn't mean one learns English more quickly as a newborn baby than somebody who has arrived from another country who's had generations of speaking Polish or Spanish or whatever. You start afresh. Down below, even more words missing. But the horizontal line is the Darwin-Wallace view. Okay, so that's Alfred Russell Wallace again. It should say, original group exhibiting variation in neck length. Original group exhibiting variation in neck length. And then we can see the rest are perfect on the right-hand side for the first drawing, bottom left. Natural selection favours longer necks, so that's the same as in the Lamarck's case, because if you haven't got a long enough neck, you don't get as much food, the argument goes, as a giraffe. You're less likely, therefore, to survive or to have as many offspring. But the crucial thing for natural selection, which Darwin realised, is you've A, got to have variation in a population. Notice the line above, the remark is just one giraffe. Nothing to do with variation between giraffes. In Darwin's view, there's got to be variation. Some giraffes have got to have slightly longer necks than other giraffes. Secondly, there must be at least some inherited component to neck length. It mustn't all be environmental variation, okay? It's rather like in skin colour. One might have environmental variation in a group, just depending on how often people go into the sun, or one might have variation that is also partly inherited because of people's origins and ancestry and where they've lived and so on. You've got to have an inherited component to neck length. It doesn't have to be 100%, just got to be some degree of inheritance. 
And when that happens, of course, the ones with the longer necks survive, have more offspring, and therefore over generations neck length slightly increases. Now, I don't want to spend the whole time on giraffes, but just because that's when often the story is left there, it's not, it's not great having a long neck as a giraffe. You know, there are big disadvantages as well as advantages. There are feeding advantages, but actually, you've got to put an awful lot of your energy into it. I admit I don't happen to know for sure, but I suspect long-necked giraffes are more likely to have certain muscular problems or skeletal problems in exactly the same way that humans who are, let's say, you know, five foot eight if they're a woman or seven foot as a man, you end up having definitely more disadvantages. So natural selection usually, usually is quite a conservative force. It doesn't like extremes. It's a disadvantage being too tall or too short, too light or too heavy. But when the environment changes, and this was one of both Darwin and Wallace's absolute intellectual breakthroughs, when the environment changes, then the sort of optimum for a particular character or trait might shift. The classic example is always given about the trees getting taller, but it could be anything else. It could, for example, be the habitat getting drier. So if the habitat gets drier, those animals that lose less water through evaporation are then favoured. And Darwin therefore had this sort of vision of natural selection working generation after generation through very long periods of time, leading to changes in the appearance of organism. And ultimately, he thought, those changes would be sufficiently great that rather as you got on the Galapagos Islands, there were different species of birds or tortoise on the different islands. The differences, Darwin thought, might not even be initially always particularly important, but they'd be just a sort of movement away from an ancestral type to new types. Right, now I mentioned very, very, very briefly something about the age of the Earth, and I just want to say a bit more about that. Darwin, of course, mid-19th century, nobody's got any real idea how old the Earth is. It's not actually a big topic of debate. There's this famous calculation by Archbishop Usher, which suggests that if you go through all the books of the Jewish scriptures and do your best to harmonize the dates, because they're a bit fiddly, you end up with, is it 4004 BC from memory? There we are. And it's all rather nicely calculated. I can't really do it. Thank you. I remember it's October, 23rd of October. Exactly so. So, and that quite often got printed into Bibles. Um, but, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have really worried whether it was 4004 BC or 6000 or 8000. But Darwin realised, of course, as had biologists before him, that if evolution was going to be important, you were going to need vastly more time than this. 
Now, the standard scientific version today, which again, possibly all of you, certainly the large majority of you will know, is that the Earth, our planet, came into existence about 4,700 million years ago. I always find these times very difficult to get my head around. If I'm teaching in school, what you do is you have loads of bits of string, which by coincidence might just happen to be 4.7 metres long. And then you can get people to stretch out bits of string and they can mark off the various, what scientists think are the great ages at which various things happened. And it's quite a fantastic communication device because you squash the whole 150, 200,000 years of human existence into the sort of last millimetre or something. And it just gives one a different span of feeling of what it's like, these deep time occurrences. Darwin actually got quite worried because when he was a, was a late middle-aged man, uh, Lord Kelvin, who was a physicist and you know, a very good physicist, Kelvin is the chap who gave his name to degrees Kelvin, so the degrees above absolute zero, minus 273 degrees centigrade, roughly. Kelvin worked out from calculations to do with um, heating and cooling of the Earth that the Earth was probably about 100 million years old. Now, I don't know, that sounds quite old to me, but Darwin was very worried. didn't sound old enough to him. In fact, we now know for sure that Kelvin's calculations are wrong, not his mistake, just like Lamarck, because nobody knew about radioactivity. And when you take into account the heat generated through radioactivity, which is one of the things happening in the core of the Earth, you realise the Earth is much older, and there are now various mechanisms used. They don't all agree perfectly, but they come out at about this 4,700 million years. One of the books which Darwin had taken with him to read on the Beagle was that person I mentioned earlier, the geologist called Lyle. And the books were Lyle's books about the principle of uniformitarianism. Now, uniformitarianism, as the word suggests, is all about things in geology being uniform, being pretty constant, happening slowly. So contrast uniformitarianism with catastrophism. So catastrophism, for those of you who like art, is John Martin paintings of incredible zagging lightning and huge earthquakes and upliftings and things crashing and so on. Now, obviously, we now know, actually everybody has always known, you get a bit of both. You do get volcanoes. But Lyle's argument was that the history of the Earth was mainly determined by things happening uniformly. So you don't have Lyle thought, and this is where, of course, it got contentious for some people, you don't have one-off extraordinary floods that cover the Earth. You don't have mountain ranges coming into being in a day or two. Everything takes a very long period of time. Darwin found that rather helpful because his main approach to evolution was about everything taking a very long time. I mean, after all, you don't see evolution in Darwin's time in one person's life. 
And the reason why Darwin really came up with the theory of evolution was, as some of you will know, because of his observation of what he termed artificial selection. I said earlier that Darwin had this extraordinary ability to collect facts, bring them together, and then make these intellectual jumps. Darwin got very friendly, as one does, with poultry breeders. And some of you will know this is a trait in middle-aged men when they haven't got anything better to do. They get over-enthusiastic with their hobbies. So he kept large numbers of poultry. He went to competitions. He went to exhibitions. He talked to people. And he was very struck by people who said that they could breed, and they were exaggerating. I suspect Darwin knew they were exaggerating. But who claimed they could breed a new race of pigeon within six or seven generations. Darwin began to realise, look, obviously natural selection can do things pretty quickly, and he knew a lot about farming. Um, so he knew that you know, cattle breeds and sheep breeds had changed in living memory, as indeed they have. And indeed, even I notice that some of the breeds of dogs now at Crufts look different from the breeds that I remember as a child. In fact, going slightly off message, and apologies to any of you who have signed up members of the Kennel Club, most of them, of course, now are a great deal less fit and much further away from the ancestral dog condition. It's uh, a separate story. Right, so long periods of time, natural selection usually working more slowly than artificial selection. Actually, more recently, of course, do most of you know the reason why the dinosaurs went extinct about 65 million years? There was mainly this huge meteorite landing in the Gulf of Mexico, the iridium layer. That's an example of catastrophism. So as with so many academic arguments, the argument now between uniformitarianism and catastrophism, the answer is usually held to be, well, it all depends. And that's often true in science when you get these two extreme positions. Having the extreme positions is very useful for clarifying what's going on. But reality often is six of one, half a dozen of the other. Long periods of uniformitarianism and occasional catastrophes. So much closer to home and more recent in time. You know that the United Kingdom was joined to Europe through a very large expanse of land called Doggerland. This is after the last ice age. So the last ice age ends 18,000 years ago. Roughly uh, six to eight thousand years ago, I ought to know more exactly. Finally, the waters on the one hand of the channel, the other hand of the North Sea, break through Doggerland because sea levels have been rising because the ice has been melting. Break through, and there's a tsunami. There is a tsunami which causes total devastation on the whole of the east coast of the United Kingdom. We know that because you get suddenly peat torn off its moorings and, and in now in, in deposits that should be pure sand and equally sand way inland in, in conventional soil deposits and so on. So you get both catastrophes and you get um, things happening uniformly.